Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing very well here in Strataville. I, I might swap between Strataland and Strataville. I would say Strataland. I like Strataville too. Anyway, uh, Strataville.com. Go and check if that's been taken. Any strata management companies <laughs> that are looking to set up and need a new name. I like it. I like it. Uh, so, yes, in a bit of a crazy mood, but I'm doing well. How are you, Rena? <laughs> good, yeah. I'm very busy, but all good. Yep. Keeping up with the post Easter deluge. Yeah, exactly. It's funny how just two days off a man that can make such a difference in terms of people's minds. It's like the world's going to end before Easter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it hasn't and we are still here and going strong. Yes. Experiencing our wins and challenges as always. Let's jump into your challenge for this week, Rena. Um, well, this is actually um, a question that we both received from um, one of our listeners and it's basically dealing with the notion of electronic voting. Yes, I remember this question, Rena, and this was from a manager listener who had sent to us a motion, a standard form motion that many of her buildings had adopted, and it was a motion that uh, the Owners Corporation resolved to accept voting by electronic means such as email. It's a motion that I have seen lots of buildings adopting lately, and of course, once the building has adopted it, there are asking their manager and sometimes asking me as a lawyer, well, now we can vote via email. We don't even need to go to the meeting. And that's not necessarily the case. The question that this listener was asking us was if a building has adopted electronic voting by means of email or teleconference or video conference, Is it possible for someone to vote by email prior to the meeting, actually not attend the meeting and have their vote counted? And the way that this manager saw it was that if somebody did that, it was actually going to fall into the category of pre-meeting electronic voting. And pre-meeting electronic voting actually has some rules, some complicated rules around it that need to be complied with. So it's not a simple matter of saying, yes, we can now vote by email, sending in an email vote prior to the meeting and you've had your say. Yeah, so basically, yeah, I think there is a lot of confusion out there in terms of what this section means. And a lot of buildings now are saying the same thing to me and say, oh, now that we have electronic voting, can we just not turn up? Hmm. And as you said, voting before the meeting is a totally different ball game than just attending a meeting by other means. So hmm. I think that's got to be uh, made very clear to your owners' corporations. And also that, in a sense, you, when you're adopting the various motions, that you look at what you're adopting because I think there's confusion out there with, with managers as to what these regulations mean. And when they adopt this, whether in their minds it may cover a whole range of things when it's actually quite um, specific to voting by other means as opposed to voting prior to the meeting. Yeah, so there's a difference between the way you vote when you're at the meeting 
and pre-meeting electronic voting, which of course is voting before the meeting. So in my view, the, the regulation that says owners corporations can adopt uh, electronic means of voting, which is clause 14 in the Strata Schemes Management Regulation, I think that goes to the type of situation where you're actually having a video meeting or a Skype meeting. You're not actually in the same room together. If you're there and you're present in the meeting by some electronic form, such as video, then you can then vote by email, sending in your votes in real time. Or you can vote via a specified voting platform, like a, a Strata Vote or other companies that are out there doing their voting platforms. That's what that Clause 14 is designed to permit, voting electronically during the meeting. If you want to vote before the meeting, for example, by email, that is pre-meeting electronic voting, and you then must comply with Subclause 3 of Regulation 14 in the Strata Schemes Management Regulation. And this says that the notice of meeting must include a statement, if you are allowing pre-meeting electronic voting, a statement that the motion could be amended at the meeting. And if the motion is amended, then your vote that you've given prior to the meeting by email may have no effect. So the notice must include that statement if you are going to allow pre-meeting electronic voting. And things get a little bit more complicated if a motion can be determined partly by pre-meeting electronic voting or wholly by pre-meeting electronic voting if a motion is going to be determined wholly by pre-meeting electronic voting, then it can't be amended at the meeting. So clause 14 is something you really need to be on top of if you're going to have pre-meeting electronic voting, which is this kind of email vote that this particular manager listener was asking us about. And Amanda, I had another situation um, this week at a meeting where an owner who had given a proxy to her daughter said, oh, well, can I now be on the telephone as well um, during the meeting due to the telephone conference um, allowance for attendance in that form? And I said to her, no, but your daughter actually is the proxy holder. So if she's there, then you both can't be there. So it's either you by telephone conference or her through proxy. You can't. And I think that's causing a bit of confusion for people thinking that even though they've given their proxy to someone, that they can still be, you know, attending, you know, by telephone. Well, is it the case that if you are an owner and you've given your proxy to someone to vote on your behalf, the proxy obviously attends and, and setting aside electronic voting and attendance for now, the proxy attends as eligible and entitled to vote. And can't the owner still attend as an owner, but simply can't speak to the meeting, can't vote? Yeah, that's right. They can still attend. Yeah. But she wanted Amanda to actually talk. Yeah. And it's funny because she was actually, like her daughter's on the committee and then we had a committee meeting and she was in the background and I think she thinks because she's the owner, she's still a member, whereas it's like, no, once you nominate somebody else to be on the committee, mm. um, you give up your right as, as an owner because oh, yeah. you've nominated a non-owner, but then you can't then still participate in the meeting. Oh, for so sure, people, yeah, for yeah, so people meeting, still yeah. make allowance. Yeah, people make allowances for that anyway because it's, sometimes it's people want to be inclusive and that's all fine, but mm. it's like really having an extra member on the committee because you've got someone else that's in the background talking as yeah. well as 
the, the meaning talking. So, yeah. Yeah, very difficult. This is certainly a deep topic and it's something that I know both you and Irina are being asked about regularly and coming across in meetings as well. I attended a meeting a couple of weeks ago where the building had invited people to put in their votes via email if they don't want to attend. And when I saw that, I said, look, guys, this is not legal. Your notice of meeting doesn't meet the requirements of Regulation 14. You cannot accept pre-meeting electronic voting in this circumstance. And they said, but Amanda, at the last general meeting, we resolved to adopt pursuant to our right under the Strata Schemes Management Regulation, we resolved to adopt this type of voting. Can't we just go ahead and do it? And I think a lot of buildings and some managers are under that misconception as well, or they don't realise until they scratch the surface and look a bit closely that this is more complicated. So that's one of the reasons why I have included as a topic that we're going to be covering at our live event coming up on the 17th of April, this issue of electronic voting. And we will have Gary Bugden there in attendance and he addresses the issue in his book, his recent book about the Strata Schemes Management Act 2015. And uh, those who are attending the event can certainly take the opportunity to ask us and ask Gary some questions about how we think this was designed to operate in practice and how managers and owners committee members can make sure that they are compliant. Mm. So if you haven't yet registered for that event, jump in quick. Spots are filling up fast. Yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash live. Okay. My challenge for this week, Rena. this is a, a short, sharp one. I've been approached a couple of times now, and this is what caused me to put it onto our list for discussion on the podcast. I've heard of some strata managing agents banking the fee for a strata search, the statutory fee for a strata search, minimum $34.10, I think it is now, banking it to their own account and not the account of the owner's corporation that's having their records searched. And I wanted to make very clear to everybody listening and spread as far and wide as I can, that fee is due to the owner's corporation. It is not due to the strata managing agent. Have you heard of this, Rena? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time, actually. Oh, does it? There we go. Well, I mean, no, sorry, not the notion of it happening all the time in terms of strata managers banking it into their own account, but every time I have a search um, that's conducted in our office, um, they always ask me all the time, oh, do you want this man out to the strata plant or to your company? And I said, no, always the strata plant. Mm. So, and I said, but that manager's no, and he said, oh, well, they should know. But it's a question that every single time without fail, 100% is asked. So, And is this professional searchers who are asking you this? Yes. So basically, wow. I think what people, managers perhaps don't understand is the relationship is between the owner's corporation and the strata management company. So therefore, there is no direct relationship between any lot owner or any third party. So hence, when the money is banked into the trust account, it should be banked under certificate or search fees, whichever is relevant. And then the manager then basically pays themselves that fee for that service. So in a sense, Mm. it's banked into the owner's corporation's funds as income and under the corresponding expense item in the financial accounts. And usually when the accounts are finalised at the end of the financial year, those two um, income and expenses, Amanda, will equal each other and there's no effect because it's just money coming in, money going out. But unfortunately, I have heard that some managers actually put it into their own trust account. Yes. So there's, no, there's no transparency as to how 
to show that the ants corporate how many searches have been conducted, etc. Yeah. So just to follow that trail through, it's the strata searcher, the person searching the books and records, who is liable to pay the fee to the owners corporation. The owners corporation then pays the fee on to the strata manager, but that is pursuant to the agency agreement. Because the agency agreement says that if there is a search carried out, uh, there's a fee paid, then that fee is paid from the owner's corporation to us. But in the first instance, there is no obligation, as you say, Rena, no obligation for the strata searcher to pay anything to the strata manager. There is no contract between the strata manager and the searcher. There is no legislation that says that the money is paid to the manager. The legislation specifically says the money is paid to the owner's corporation. So I agree with you, Rena, as a, as a matter of proper accounting and, well, compliance with the law, let's say, the fee needs to be paid to the owner's corporation in the first instance. And then if it then goes on to the strata manager under a different authority, which is the authority of the agency agreement, then that's fine. But I think that a lot of the um, managers actually ask for it to be put in their name, which is why... This is what I'm hearing. Yeah. yeah. That's what I've heard that a couple of times now. Yeah. So it's not as if the searchers don't know what the act is. It's the other way around. Yeah. But any searchers out there listening or anyone who's paying fees to inspect records, and it could be a lot owner, it could be lawyers, uh, I do it quite regularly, uh, I think it's important for us to be telling managers, uh, no, that's not the way it works. I have no contractual relationship with you. The, the relevant part of the legislation is Schedule 4 to the Strata Schemes Management Regulation and that clearly states that the fee is payable to the owner's corporation and it's a fee of $31 plus GST. So I think that's where I came up with my 3410. And if you're a searcher, if you're paying this fee over and you're being directed by a management company to pay it to the management company, I strongly suggest you draw their attention to this Schedule 4 requirement and ask them to explain why it shouldn't be paid to the owners corporation pursuant to the legislation. Yep. All right, Rena, your win for this week. Well, this is actually an interesting one that comes up with many managers when it comes to their appointment or their termination or their reappointment as the case may be. And I had a question from a former colleague and it related to the proxy form and in the old section it was under Schedule 2, Section 11, and the current Act is under Section 26, Appointment of Proxies. So it talks about the form is prescribed by the regulations and is signed by the person appointing the proxy or executed any other matter permitted by the regulations. And the form of the proxy is a prescribed form to make provision for the giving of instructions on A, whether the person appointing the proxy intends the proxy to be able to vote on all matters and, if not, matters on which the proxy will be able to vote and B, which is the pertinent point that my discussion today is about, how the person appointing the proxy wants the proxy's vote to be exercised on a motion for the appointment or continuation in office of a strata managing agent. So the question was, does this section of the proxy have to be filled out when someone is giving their proxy to a person to vote, in this case, on the, on the reappointment of the managing agent? And my view was that basically the old Act and the new Act, the proxy form is mirrored in this way, this part of the proxy form, and therefore the proxy bearer must be told how to vote. So you must fill out that section of the proxy form. When it comes to the appointment of a managing agent. agent. Yeah, 
But if it's not, if that person hasn't put anything in that part of the proxy form, then that proxy cannot be used towards the vote and the counting of votes for mm. the appointment of the managing agent. Yeah, I think that's right, Rena. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's any case law on this and it would be good to have some because uh, I think the point is arguable, but I think there's a good argument in favour of your view and it's one that I agree with that where there is provision in the legislation and in the standard form for an owner to direct their proxy how to vote on the appointment of a strata managing agent, then the intention to me is clear that there should be a direction provided and in the absence of a direction, then the proxy doesn't have authority to vote on that issue because if it was to be left open to the proxy to determine, then there wouldn't be that separate requirement and that separate section on the form. Yeah, I follow your that's logic a, that's there. That's exactly our, our thinking, man. And why would they have a separate section on the Act yeah. um, at case? Now... It's very funny that you asked the question that there's no case law on this because in my previous um, company, we were involved, it was a large scheme and actually it was a, a former employee who, um, you know, in a different capacity was giving advice to an owner's corporation on how to terminate the company. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, it was all through proxies. I had the meeting on a Friday night, which is you know, highly unusual and there's hardly anyone there. It's all by proxy. And of course, we got copies of all the proxies and and the majority of them didn't have any indication in that section on how to vote. So we obviously challenged that and said, well, you know, we don't believe this is valid because we've been validly terminated because these sections of the Act of the proxy form have not been completed. So I rang the Office of Fair Trading and spoke to a senior person that I deal with on a regular basis. And he said to me, Rena, well, the agent is not a party to the meeting. So therefore, you cannot put on an application to say that the, the chairperson had invalidly declared proxies to be compliant because mm -hmm. as an agent, you're not, you're not a party to the meeting or to this aspect. And I said, well, the only person he said that could do that would be another a lot owner. So a lot owner could actually put on an application and say, I don't believe this meeting was validly held because of the fact that these proxies didn't contain the, the appropriate um, wording, etc. So yeah, it's an interesting one, Amanda, that the proxy form, that part of it hasn't changed mm. and, um, and that many people um, use this to try and um, terminate managers, but not really understanding that it has to be filled out. And a lot of actually lawyers don't even I've received advice from other lawyers to, to say that you don't need to have this and I mm. totally disagree with that. And as you said, why would that section be a separate section in the actual form if it had no bearing on on its use and, and completion. Mm. The proper completion of proxy forms, oh, I'm sure we could do a, a whole episode on that, Rena. in terms of making sure they are dated and they are signed. It's very important for if an owner wants their vote to be valid to make sure that they have properly completed a proxy form and especially when there are contentious issues on the agenda such as the termination or appointment of a managing agent. It's something that chairpeople and those who are running meetings under delegated authority um, such as strata managers and even where some lawyers are appointed to check proxies on the night, are very conscious of making sure now that proxy forms are correctly completed. So I think that's why we're seeing these questions crop up as, as people become more educated about these issues. And, oh, look, I don't like to say it, but are our buildings becoming more litigious? Or I think what's happening, Amanda, is sometimes there are, there are people that, you know, have a certain agenda and therefore if other people don't agree with it, then that's when you start to look at the technicalities of, of, mm. of meetings and making sure that people do the right thing. But I actually will speak on another time um, on a very 
big scheme that I had where proxies became the issue and the Office of Fair Trading intervened. So I'll talk to you about that on another occasion. Mm, I shall look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Well, my win for this week is a win that we had in the tribunal before the appeal panel of the tribunal. And it is a reported case. I will give you the link to that one in the show notes. It involved a building in Newcastle, the strata plan number 80412. And it was an appeal from a costs order. And this owner's corporation who I acted for had been unsuccessful before the tribunal and they had a cost order made against them. And when we looked into the reasons for that cost order and the circumstances in which it was made, we said to the owner's corporation, we actually don't think this cost order should have been made. We don't think that the tribunal had the power to make the cost order. And so we appealed it to the appeal panel and we were successful in having that cost order set aside. Now, the backstory to this is that it originally, the application originally started under the old law in New South Wales as an application to the adjudicator. So we used to have our adjudicators, which many of you will be familiar with, who made decisions on the papers only. There was no appearance before the tribunal. And the adjudicator who originally received this application, which was an application from a lot owner for the owner's corporation to do some remedial work to the property. The adjudicator thought that the application was a bit complicated, so the adjudicator referred the application up to the tribunal. Now, the old legislation provided that where an adjudicator referred an application to the tribunal, the tribunal only ever had the same powers as the adjudicator. Now, under the old law, an adjudicator could not make orders for costs. And there was a single decision some years old from a tribunal member that said where there is a referred application, a cost order cannot be made. Now, in our case, the tribunal member considering our case departed from that decision and said, I think that decision is wrong and I think I can make that cost order. I think I am vested with the powers of the tribunal and I don't accept that I'm limited in that cost-making power. We thought that was wrong. The appeal panel of the tribunal agreed with us and also thought that was wrong and it provided good clarification of what had been a bit of a, a, an unsettled issue when it came to referred applications from the adjudicator up to the tribunal. And helpfully, uh, you might think, oh, well, none of this is now is relevant because we've now got the new law and those kinds of applications that are left over from the old law are probably wrapping themselves up now. But the decision does go into quite a bit of detail about uh, powers under Section 60 of the Civil and Administrative Tribunal Act relating to costs. And Rena, we spoke about that in our last episode. So it's worth having a read of this long decision in that respect. And also some of the regulations around the cost-making power. So for example, where there is a dispute where the value of which is more than $30,000, then the tribunal uh, has greater powers to award costs. And where it's less than $30,000, that power is not so clear and this decision gets into the depths of those parts of the regulation and the Tribunal Act which is now very relevant to cost making under our new legislation. It's oh, great, Amanda. Well done. Yes, a happy building in that respect, uh, not having to face that cost order and uh, a link to that one in the show notes for you. That's great. Well, I think that's about it this week, Rena. That feels like a jam-packed episode. There was a lot in there. 
Yeah, I think there was actually quite a lot of different diversions as well, Amanda, apart from the topic that we had originally decided to talk about. Yeah, yeah. A few more things on our list, on our spreadsheet. Those who listen to our episode 100, which was our behind the scenes look at how we record this podcast, will know all about the spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet is filling up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I shall catch you next time, Rena. Okay, bye, Amanda. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?